This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 511 Can a comic collector of over 25 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. It's a doomsday showdown on Mars, a poetic caveman, Bruce and Barry at Loggerheads, Selena's interview, a visit to the Magic Lands, a final issue goes sideways, Spike arrives a bit early, Black Hammer goes civilian, and the torturous tale of Captain Marvel. This is how I got my way free comics for Sunday, March 17, 2019. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs, and subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out tumblr.com slash blog slash sfppn, or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Now, our coverage may be skewed for a bit as we handle some family issues. This episode won't include this week's comics as we are taping early, but we do begin with two events. Doomsday Clock number 9 of 12 by Johns, Frank, and Anderson. This oft-delayed miniseries wanders towards a conclusion. Keep in mind that this was supposed to have completed last fall, and we still have three more issues to go, at least one of which has been pushed back again. Also, they've already announced a hardcover for November, so it's a race against time now. Anyway, Mr. Blue Man Group is still on Mars with a Legion of Superheroes ring in his hand. He notes how a legionnaire, Pharaoh Lad, based on the description, died with this on. Now the ring disappears, indicating the LSH will never exist. Is this because Manhattan erased the JSA or because everything is about to end soon? Meanwhile, a massive collection of heroes are in various spaceships on their way to Mars. There are contingents of the New Gods, the Hawks, the Green Lantern Corps, the Titans, JLA, the Super Family, Justice League Dark, the Doom Patrol, the Bat Family, the Outsiders, the Marvel Family, and the ex-Charlton heroes. And this last one is significant since the Watchmen is based on those heroes. The only ones missing seem to be the Trinity. Superman was blasted by Firestorm in the last issue, as was Batman, while Wonder Woman tries to soothe the masses. They determined that the blast was not caused by Firestorm, but by an energy source on Mars. Meanwhile, the political situation is dire. The president is about to condemn Superman. The Cold War has become hot. Bruce wakes up and realizes what's happening, then tries to get a transmission to Mars, which will take 11 minutes. Too late. Various groups attack Manhattan on Mars with no luck. Guy decks Manhattan only to get his ring swiped. Firestorm is brought into Manhattan's mind only to see how Dr. Stein caused the firestorm effect to study metahumans. Finally, Captain Adam, the character Dr. Manhattan is based on, takes him out only to watch him re-coalesce. Manhattan then apparently takes out all the heroes? During all this, Lex confronts Lois at Superman's bedside, saying he knows about Manhattan and what he's done to the timeline. Have you ever heard of Wally West? And Wonder Woman, in the midst of her U.N. speech, is attacked by various villains, which makes sense since all the heavy hitters are missing in action or off-planet. 
Gary Frank's slavish adherence to Dave Gibbon's nine panel pages really hurts the impact of the enormous fight. Just get this done already. Especially since that collected edition was just solicited. Heroes in Crisis number six of nine by King, Gerard's Mann, and Maury. As always, there are multiple storylines here. Wally is dealing with being back from the Speed Force, seeing all his friends again, dealing with the fact that his family is gone, and trying to work it all out at Sanctuary. He feels he's all alone when a voice says, Wally, you're not alone. Just as the event at Sanctuary begins, and he finds the dead body of Roy. Nark, that's G-N-A-R-R-K, a very obscure DC character, essentially a caveman brought to modern times, relates his memories at Sanctuary, how peaceful it was in ancient times, how he now relates it to poetry despite his otherwise guttural speech, how the peace was broken by violence necessary to survive. Now Nark is ready to go home as the Sanctuary event begins. We cut to a dying narc on the lawn comforting a fellow dying hero. Harley is with Ivy, who is taking her through simulations at Sanctuary. They all involve Harley confronting Joker and never end well. We end up with a pile of dead Jokers with Harley sitting on top when the Sanctuary event occurs. Ivy says she will leave the simulation to see what's going on. See you in a sec. Cut to Wally being blasted by Booster and Harley seeing the event. I'm supposed to be somewhere fun. The last page shows various minor heroes in Sanctuary Sessions talking about how many people they have saved. This is all very evocative, but the use of simulations makes the stakes questionable. Is all this happening in real life or not? Here's a tie-in to this event. The Flash, number 65, by Williamson, Sandoval, Tarragona, and Maury. The finale of The Price crossover with Batman. They're fighting Gotham Girl while trying to save civilians. She finally collapses from using her powers, and the heroes save her via super speed CPR and a jolt from the utility belt. They're about to transport her to the Batcave when Iris confronts them. You brought another innocent into this world of yours without any thought to the repercussions again. She's still in shock about the death of Wally. Cut to the cave where Bruce plans to resume training Gotham Girl to be a hero, and Barry says that Iris is right. What happened to the Barry Allen who was always hopeful and optimistic? He died along with Wally West. They begin to scream at each other. Another innocent in the crossfire, another dead Robin. At least I never forgot one of my partners existed. They nearly come to blows before Barry leaves to find a note from Iris in his apartment. I realize something, Barry. I wasn't writing Wally's obituary. I was writing yours. Iris is leaving for a while to figure things out. Cut to a near-future epilogue where Bruce is in front of his computer looking at pictures of dozens of heroes, one of which he thinks has been turned by someone. When Clark suggests he bring Barry in on the case, Barry is unsure if he can trust him. Mark, Heroes in Crisis is another one that I'd really like to see finished. (laughs) I think I would have really liked it if I could have read it all at once. Do you think they added a lot of padding in order to make this and the Doomsday series? Absolutely both are padded to the gills. Jeff Johns on Doomsday is going down this route of, I'm looking through Wikipedia for the most obscure DC heroes, and King is doing his normal, very slow, intricate storyline that will make sense, hopefully, at the end, although you can question whether Mr. Miracle in the end (laughs) made a lot of sense. Right. (laughs) So, yes, there's a lot, and it certainly could have been trimmed enormously. I think the bigger problem here is that you've got two major events competing with each other, 
and neither can kind of step on each other's toes and from a continuity standpoint. So wouldn't it have been better, say, Heroes in Crisis could have easily been either a super-sized comic or a original graphic novel. Yes. Um, I, I'm leaning towards, like, reintroducing the super-sized comic just because then they could still technically have it in their continuity and the other books could play off of it. But then we could read it and actually have it mean something. Especially Heroes in Crisis, because the whole event appears to be happening in a very short period of time. Exactly. It's, it's not like months are going by. In Doomsday Clock, it is definitely time is passing. But this could have been done, as you said, as a single 100-page Super Spectacular or as an OGN. Absolutely. And unfortunately, they went this way. Now, let's do a quick lightning round on the rest of the comics. Batman 66 shows us an interview of Selina by The Question, which is all inside Bruce's mind. This gives us a review of the relationship and reiterates her belief that Batman can't be happy and be Batman, which is why she left him. A very beautiful issue, even if it covers existing ground. Shazam number three gives us more details about the Magic Lands as the Marvels meet with King Kid. The Fun Lands are for abused children. King Kids decides the Marvels should remain there. They break out and split up. Some end up in Game Lands, while others end up in the Wild Lands, where talking animals rule. This is clearly where Talkie Tawny comes from. Sideways number 13. This is the final issue. Something I just suggested last episode, but wasn't aware was coming. Like all series cut off early, it tries to wrap up a lot of storylines and is a bit muddled. Not sure if Sideways will go the way of Aztec, disappearing until DC needs to exercise the copyright again. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, number two from Boom, continues to tell the high school origin tale. Many of the characters are being introduced way earlier than in the original show. Last issue it was Darla, this issue it's Spike, who has quite the interaction with Cordelia. And poor Xander is hitting his existential crisis very early in the series. Since Willow has already found herself, there's no crush on Xander, and Xander is feeling his isolation a lot more than in the TV series. I'm hoping he hooks up with Anya soon. Black Hammer Age of Doom number 8 from Dark Horse shows our heroes dropped into a world where they were never heroes. All seem to realize something is wrong, but can't figure out what. Abe is a night watchman. Barbalian is still on Mars, but about to depart. Weird is a successful astronaut. It's Lucy, now a waitress at a pizza restaurant, who gets a mysterious call from Taki Waki, who tells her they must find the others before it is too late. Now, we blew through those comics because of the recent Captain Marvel film. Review blurb, a serviceable superhero film. And thought it was time to explain the torturous tale of Captain Marvel's history in our extra credit class. We begin in 1939 when Fawcett Publications and C.C. Beck created the first Captain Marvel, a kid named Billy Batson who, after saying the magic word Shazam, turned into the world's mightiest mortal with powers given to him by the gods. It was a fairly goofy comic with talking animals, a mind-controlling worm, and an eventual Marvel family including an obese Uncle Marvel. You may be wondering why Marvel Comics didn't protect their namesake. Well, Marvel didn't yet exist at least using that name. DC, however, had a big issue with Cap in that their legal department had an edict. If a hero flies and has a cape, you sue them. The court case that ran from 1948 to 51 basically exonerated Fawcett, but by then had pretty much given up on the idea, and Fawcett was gone soon after. 
Meanwhile, a small British publisher had been reprinting the Fawcett Captain Marvel when the U.S. legal decision cut them off. They had a writer continue the stories using a barely disguised version called Marvel Man. This ran until the early 60s, and then Alan Moore revived it 20 years later, now called Miracle Man, to appease Marvel Comics. During that run, Neil Gaiman wrote stories and later fought a long legal case to wrest control of the character out of limbo. In the end, he worked on an agreement to publish the 80s stories under Marvel and later do new stories. However, the latter have not yet surfaced. Cut to 1966, where minor publisher MF Enterprises thought it was a good idea to grab the third rail and publish their own Captain Marvel, an alien who, when evil lurked, could split his body into multiple parts. It lasted all of five issues before Marvel sued them out of existence. In 1967, Marvel decided they should exercise the copyright and created a character named Marvell. That's M A R V E L L, an alien military officer who becomes a superhero. And this character had several revamps before dying of cancer in 1982. Back to DC in 1972, where publisher Carmine Infantino decided to license the now moribund Fawcett version of the hero. The comic was called Shazam, originally with the subtitle The Original Captain Marvel, before Marvel arrived with a cease and desist order. The book included both Fawcett reprints and new stories, while the character appeared sporadically elsewhere at DC. Eventually, the character and his continuity were enshrined as Earth-S in a JLA crossover. The character would get various reboots over the years, one of which just kicked off. DC also decided to push Shazam as a Saturday morning TV show produced by Filmation as their first live-action series. The show looked like it was produced via pocket change by writers who apparently said, yeah, Captain Marvel, I got it, before creating a scenario where young Billy rides around Southern California in an RV with his mentor named Mentor. It has just been remastered on the DC Universe streaming site, and it's hilarious. Back at Marvel, where in 1982, a second Captain Marvel was created, a young woman named Monica Rambo, who could transform into energy. She was later renamed Photon, and if you've seen the new Captain Marvel movie, you've seen her as a young girl. The Captain Marvel name then passed to various characters. Genus Vell, Phyla Vell, Gnir, Norvar, throughout the 90s and 2000s. In 2012, existing Marvel character Carol Danvers, first appearance 1968, a.k.a. Ms. Marvel 1977, a.k.a. Binary 1982, a.k.a. Warbird 1998, became the latest Captain Marvel in 2012. She was a military officer who, after being exposed to an explosion of a Kree device in the presence of Marvell, turned her into a human Kree hybrid with similar powers. As you can tell with the different code names, Carol was subject to a lot of twists and turns, some of which are less than savory. The new film version takes elements from multiple points and turns it into an understandable storyline. Of course, we will see yet another Captain Marvel in person, if not in name, in the imminent Shazam film. Okay, before we get out of here, it's time to play America's fastest growing new game show. Guess who's on the cover of Entertainment Weekly? Are you ready, Mark? I'm ready. Okay, I'm pushing the button. TV-related? Yes. Uh, is it uh, one person on the cover? Uh, no. Is there a person on the cover? Yes. Okay. Two people? Uh, on the cover we received, Okay, yes. so there's multiple covers. Yes. I'm um, going to tell you there are 16 different covers. 16? Give me a break, Entertainment Weekly. Yes. Uh, okay, so... Six, okay. 
uh, is it a show? Uh, are they all on the same show? Yes. Are uh, the show on broadcast TV? No. On basic cable? No. On pay cable? Yes. I'm guessing it's Game of Thrones. It is. So we're just going to leave it right there. Because <laughs> anybody you said from Game of Thrones is going to be on one of the couples. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's the last... Uh, the last season. Season. It's our half season, as it were. Okay, announcer bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out tumblr.com slash blog slash sfppn. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.